Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. When I was younger, uh, I used to really be involved in watching sports. I played sports when I was younger. I'm not extremely athletic, but I went to a small Christian school, and so you kind of needed everybody to play, and so I made the team every single year. No surprise, right? And so, I, I, but I love to watch sports. The two sports that I really love to watch was uh, college basketball, and many of you know that I will pull for the Tar Heels any day. And then uh, some of you may not know this as, as, as well, but I love to watch NFL, like professional football, primarily Eagles. The Philadelphia Eagles is my team, has always been my team since I was a little kid growing up in the Philadelphia area. And so I I knew everything that there was to know about the Philadelphia Eagles. But several years ago, um, well, now that I'm down here, I don't really watch, uh, you know, sports as much because your perspective kind of changes, at least for me it did. When you get caught up with church planning and helping your wife raise three kids, you quickly realize this means nothing to me. It matters nothing to me. I don't even watch sports that much anymore. Uh, but I do follow um, certain athletes, and especially ones that have a solid Christian testimony, unlike Aaron Rodgers, because we know that he doesn't have a Christian testimony. Chris and I talk about that one a lot. Uh, but there's one particular quarterback uh, that, that I follow um, pretty, pretty closely. And uh, when I had first moved down here, this quarterback was just drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles. He graduated from North Dakota State and uh, he went on to play for the Philadelphia Eagles his first season there, and he led the Eagles with an 11-2 record, which eventually led them to the title game, and they ended up winning their first ever Super Bowl. Eagles had never won a Super Bowl until 2018, and I, he, didn't, he was injured, and so he didn't quite make his way there, but his name is Carson Wentz, and some of you recognize the jersey there, and so kind of hold this here. This is the only sports jersey that I actually have. I bought one one time on like at Goodwill or something like that, and I think it was, um, I'm totally drawing a blank. It was the other quarterback that got in trouble for the dog stuff. What was his name? Michael Vick. Yeah, that's why he was at Goodwill. And so I spent like really very little money there, Uh, but I, I asked for like like normally every single year for Christmas, I asked for like one thing that costs a little bit more money. And so I had my family, all of them chipped in and they bought me this, this Wentz jersey. And, you know, I'm not all about wearing jerseys of other men, right? Like necessarily promoting them. But what I love about Carson Wentz, and he's, he's had some bumps right now. He's not doing well in the NFL, but it's his Christian faith. Wentz, bigger than anything he's ever done in sports, Wentz started a Christian foundation. And that Christian foundation focuses on uh, serving meals to those that are underprivileged. They went and they built a, uh, a, a, a sports complex in Haiti, and then he also has different ministries that focuses on making disciples all throughout the community. And the name of this organization is actually the tagline that he lives his life by. It's the first time I've ever seen this tagline, and that's what really interests me into following him. And the name of his organization is entitled Audience of One. Audience of One. If you were to go to his social media, of course, I haven't been there in a while, you'll see, I think it's still there, this tagline that just simply says, audience of one. And what he means by that is everything that he lives for, everything that he does is for the purpose of serving an audience of one. And we know that to be God. Now, what does audience of one mean? Of course, we understand that it means serving God. But how many of us Christians truly live our life for the audience of one? See, the problem is we tend to live our life for the audience of God plus fill in the blank. 
And the issue is when we live our life for God plus, whenever that plus is off kilter or it doesn't match up with what we want it to be, whether realms of success or however we define it, we enter a stage of depression and discontent and uncomfortableness because our plus hasn't been met. Why? Because our audience of one is no longer an audience of one. It's an audience of multiple. As we move, as we continue on in our journey this morning through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is he shifts from this focus of what he was discussing in Matthew chapter 5 regarding your heart and where your heart is regarding hatred and lust and adultery and all those other things. And he moves now to really drive in and hone in to the perspectives that we have within this Christian life. The perspectives that we have when it comes to serving God, when it comes to serving God alone. And so as we move into Matthew chapter 6, as we begin this morning, everything that Jesus has contained within here is still supporting what he says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we've discussed this every single week. What he means by that is Jesus is looking more for the external conformity. He's looking for an internal transformation. And so everything that he lays out within the Sermon on the Mount, giving kingdom principles uh, for kingdom living to the kingdom citizens, being Christians, those of you that have received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. These are principles that we ought to follow, but they're not something that we conform to externally, but something that we conform to or or we are transformed by when it comes to the power of the Lord and the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And so as we come into Matthew chapter 6, the common thread as Jesus continues on is now focusing on the acts of righteousness, prayer, and fasting and the motivation behind that. What is your motivation between or behind your acts? of righteousness when it comes to almsgiving, serving in the church? Are you doing that for the praise of man? Are you doing that for the praise of God? What is your motivation behind your prayer? When you're praying out loud, maybe that's the only time you ever pray is when you're in a group of friends. Are you doing that so that you can become um, or impress your friends to think that you're some sort of a spiritual giant by the way that you pray? What about your fasting? Some of you have gone through periods of fasting and may not have even realized that the scriptures literally say that when you're fasting, splash your face to make it look like as if you were not fasting so that you're not drawing attention to yourself to a time that is set aside to be an intimate time with God. And so what Jesus does is he, again, is pushing in on our hearts into a deeper level and taking some of the most sensitive areas of our life, the Christian aspects of our life, and driving down to the heart of how we uh, live out those things. If you haven't done so, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6 this morning as we continue through this journey. Matthew chapter 6 can be divided into really several different sections, and they're all supported by this theme of glorifying God alone. For example, in verses 1 through 4, Jesus says that when we do our good works, we must do them for God alone. As he transitions into verses 5 through 8, Jesus says that when we pray to God, we do it for God's glory alone. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus says that when we fast, we fast for the glory of God alone. And then beginning in verse 19, he really focuses the rest of the chapter by speaking to the priorities that we have in our life, finances and other things, in relation to glorifying God alone. And so as we focus now for the next several weeks on Matthew chapter 6, we really can entitle this a mini-series within a mini-series within an overall series of Matthew. This mini-series within the Sermon on the Mount can be entitled this, For the Glory of God Alone. 
And so the title of our message this morning is this, For the Glory of God Alone, Part 1, Works and Prayer. Now for some, if we're honest, the words that we see contained in these first four verses specifically and throughout the rest of Matthew chapter 6 can be a little bit confusing. Because Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 that Jesus commands that our light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So what is it? Do we do these things in private, such as our good works, so that nobody knows what we're doing? Do we pray in private so that we're not drawing attention to ourselves? Or do we do what Jesus commands us to do here and let our light shine? Which one is it? I'm confused. And so what we're going to see here is this seemingly contradictive phrase with Jesus and really what it means when it comes to applying that to our Christian life. And so the first thing that we have to look at here, number one in our notes here is this. God is glorified through our works. God is glorified through our works. Jesus says, beginning in verse 1, Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus delivers the command followed by the reward. The reward is do your deeds for the glory of God and you will be rewarded by God. Now again, this verse can be a bit confusing, especially for those that come from the King James and the New King James background. Some of you have those Bibles in front of you this morning, and you see that phrase, charitable deeds, right? See, uh, uh, charitable deeds. But some of you maybe have an ESV in front of you, and you see a different phrase where it says works of righteousness. And so in the New King James, that phrasing there can be confusing because typically when we say charitable deeds, we limit that to our financial giving. In other words, our almsgiving, so to speak. And although that is an aspect of what Jesus is saying here, that's really kind of the main thing that he's more or less focusing on, it is not limited to simply our financial contribution, but works or righteous works overall, general uh, righteous giving overall. And so with that in mind, we continue on and we look at two different things that Jesus describes here. First off, he describes the wrong motivation. This is the wrong way to do this. He says in verse 2, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, in this context, the Jews had no governmental society to be able to distribute welfare to those that were lower income. They didn't have a system like what we do today. And so the way that they would distribute that is they literally would sound a horn so that those that were part of the welfare, or in other words, need of assistance, would know to go to the temple and be able to collect the funds that was distributed to them so that they could continue to live. That's how they were made aware that their funds were ready for them to be able to receive. Now, the only way that they could function was when those that were rich, those that had more money, would be able to give towards the well-being of those that were in the lower income category. And so what Jesus says here that when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. He's talking about don't draw attention to yourself as those that are hypocrites do. Letting everybody know that you gave to the poor and that the poor should know that it's because of what you gave to them that they can now live and have sustenance to be able to continue on with life. Jesus says don't be like those that are hypocritical. Now, if we were to draw this uh, a little bit deeper, we could 
think and see that Jesus may be referring to a literal horn that was sounded off, as we know that it was a time in which they were called, but also a literal horn that was sounded off for by the hypocrites to let everybody know what they were doing. Or he could also be referring to the clank that was made when the money was dropped into the bucket or the offering box of those that were giving. Literally, the hypocrites would make a scene when they gave to let everybody know that not only were they giving, but they were giving substantially. Because obviously, the louder the clank means the more coin that was going in there, therefore the more inf- uh, uh, income was being uh, given out by those that were hypocritical. The point that Jesus is making with all of this is that when you give, do not make a big show of it. You give discretionary, in a discretionary way, you give in a private way. Now, unfortunately, many religions today are built on honoring those that gave more financially to the church. And some of you have been in the church where you've seen a pew that was named by Sister Frederica that gave X amount of dollars to the church. I'm sorry, by God's grace, your name will never be given on a pew based upon how much you gave. And I'm not saying that every church is doing that in a bad intention. I'm not saying that at all. But there's a temptation with that kind of recognition to do exactly what Jesus says don't do here. Okay, some of you have seen secular fundraising where they say, listen, if you give $5,000, your name will be written on this wall. If you give $10,000, you'll have a brick on the sidewalk, right? Like your name. And that's fine for secular organizations. That's fine. But within a church, it should not be that way because a church should not know who gives what, when, and how much do they give. Because we don't give for the glory of man, we give for the glory of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that when you give, those that give in a way for man to praise them are hypocrites. In other words, they are giving for the wrong reason. They're giving in the name of the Lord, but they're giving it for the wrong reason. They will get their reward, and their reward is limited to the recognition of man, what man can say to them as a way of a thank you. But those that give for the recognition of God's glory and God's glory alone will be recognized by God in a far greater way. That's the point that Jesus is making uh, throughout this. And so that is the wrong motivation. Wrong motivation is giving for the glory of yourself and the praise of man and not for the glory of God. But now Jesus Christ compares that to, letter B, the right motivation. And I think that you can all probably fill in the blank. What is the right motivation? Jesus says in verse 3, But when you do it a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Seems a little bit of a weird phrase. Does that mean that like when you're when you're giving in the offering of church, you should be sitting on your other hand as you put the money in the bucket. Of course, Jesus doesn't mean literally. What Jesus is saying here is that you have to take extreme measures to keep your giving private, to not garner in any way any kind of public praise or recognition. Uh, Some of you have heard me say that there was a donation given to the church, and there have been some significant donations given to this church as we were raising funds, but none of you have any idea who that was, nor will you ever know who that was, because it is not my job or my priority as a pastor to tell you who gives what, because I am not here at all 
to take any kind of glory away from God, nor were those people, and I praise God for this, that have given those contributions ever want their name mentioned in the least bit. Because they're giving for the right motivation. Here, here's why this is such a big deal. See, when we strive to give for the glory of self, what we're doing is we're taking away from the intention and the recognition that only God deserves. Let me give you a scenario here. Let's say, for example, you and your wife, or if you're single, you yourself, are praying for God to provide in some way for X, whatever that is. And let's say that somebody anonymously took care of that need for you and you had no idea who it came from. Your attention is not drawn to that person that gave you that gift, although you knew it came from someone. It is drawn to God and praising God for that gift being provided from that anonymous donor. But if you knew that somebody gave you X amount of funds, whatever, for that gift, and you knew who they were, that doesn't mean that you're not praising God for it, but your temptation now is drawn to praise that person. Well, my, my wife and I were um, not quite married yet. We were almost married, a few more months shy of our, our wedding uh, there. I had, uh, the Lord had worked in my heart. There was an opportunity for me to be able to leave the, the secular job or however you wanted to find it. It wasn't Christian work full time, to be able to leave that and go into ministry and become a youth director there. And so um, my wife and I were going into marriage and we had a little bit of school debt. It wasn't a lot. 40000 for me was a lot, but I, I'm told it's not a lot these days, right? And some of you that are sitting there with school debt, you're like, I wish I had 40000 right? And just in school debt. But we had some things stacked up and we were hoping to be able to buy a home, or, you know, first off. And I understand a lot of people that that young can't do that, but we were just praying for that next step, and we're asking the Lord to provide. I'll never forget that uh, my pastor pulled me aside one day at work, and I sat down towards the back of our auditorium, and he said, Brandon, I just want you to know that somebody within the church anonymously donated $20,000 for you and your wife to be able to go out and buy your first home so that you can use that towards ministry. To this day, I have no idea who that was. I have no idea. I'm grateful for him, grateful for who that person was, but I know that in that moment, my mind was not focused on that particular person whom I know gave. It was focused on praising God, that God used that person, whoever it was, to be able to provide for our needs. Some of you, actually probably all of you, can stand up here and say a time when God provided for your needs, and it may have been through someone else, but you have no idea who that was. See, when we are seeking to gain the praise of man, not only are we hurting ourselves, because we're only limited to the praise of man rather than the praise of God, we're seeking to take away the glory that only God deserves through that. And so Jesus says to give anonymously. Jesus urges the kingdom citizens to do all of their sacrificial giving and service for the glory of God. This church alone, along with many other New Testament local churches, is built upon the backs of those that sacrificially gave for the glory of God alone. Now, many of you know this. Some of you may not be as familiar with the church concept, but the only way that this church functions and survives and is able to pay staffing and able to reach in the community is literally, literally off of your donations. Uh, one time somebody was giving me a hard time. It was uh, somebody within the church, and well, it, was it was probably TJ because he's the only one that would do this, right? And he said something along the lines of like, just, you know, like what brother-in-laws do, jabbing me for, I don't know, something about the church and helping us eat or something like that. And uh, I said to him, I said, yeah, you're right. Like literally that is how we're able to feed our family is off the backs of those that donate. So unlike businesses where they can sell other things and all the churches are different. So I say all that to say this. 
If you are praying on whether or not your sacrificial giving before the Lord actually makes a difference to a local body, it 100% does. I cannot tell you how many times needs have been met off of just sense, just sense a need was taken care of. We see examples all throughout Scripture where, for, for example, one of the most common one, uh, popular one, was the widow and her might, right? She didn't have a lot to give. But the heart behind the very little that she gave meant more to the Lord than those that were rich that were giving for the glory of man. So I say all that to say this. What Jesus Christ, again, is doing is when it comes to our sacrificial giving, when it comes to our righteous deeds, he is driving in at the heart of it. It doesn't matter the amount that you give. It's the heart behind it. Somebody can give a significant amount, okay, that we see on paper, but it may not be done in the right way because it really isn't a sacrifice. It's just kind of something that's left over. And again, that's between you and God. Or it may be done for the glory of man and seeing how other people are going to treat you because you gave X amount of dollars. So again, Jesus is driving home the point here that when it comes to your giving, you have to give for the glory of God alone, not seeking for the approval of man. But look at what he adds here. In verse 4, he says that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, what does that mean? That what the Father sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus is reminding us that through the omniscience of God, God knows and sees all that we do, both the good and bad. Okay, we've got that figured out, right? God sees what we do. But what does it mean that the Father will reward you openly? Does that mean that at some point in this earthly ministry you'll be be lifted up and you'll be some God God will somehow make an announcement about everything that you've done here on earth? Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about that you're gonna rise into some high level of influence because of the amount of money that you gave? No, that's actually not what God is talking about. There are blessings that God opens up for us as we continue to make him a priority, and those blessings may be financial. They may be other things. I will never stand up here and tell you that the more you give to God financially will increase your wealth financially like some other pastors do. It's not scriptural. It's not based in the truth of scripture. You will always take care of your needs as you make God continue to make a priority. But what does that mean here? It actually means it's got an eschatological flavor to it. And the future, uh, during, uh, at a later time, not now, there's, there's something called the judgment seat of Christ. And some of you have heard of that phrase. You've heard of the Bema seat, which means the same thing. How many of you are familiar with that phrase? At least you've heard of the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, as a point of clarification, the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment are two different things that the scriptures talk about. The great white throne judgment is not for me and you as Christians. It is for those that are unsaved. They they will receive their final condemnation, so to speak. This is what the Bible talks about when it comes to the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. It It is an event in which all Christians, genuine Christians, will participate in. Now, that word judgment seat of Christ comes from uh, this, this, this word bima. Now, the word bima uh, is taken from the ancient games where the contestants would compete for a prize under the careful scrutiny of judges who would make sure that every rule of the contest was obeyed. The victor was then given um, by, by, by the judge, then given a, a crown of laurel wreaths, a place upon their head, and they would be given when they were standing on the position of a platform called a bima. 
That's where that phrase, that word bima, comes in relation to, to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? The judgment seat of Christ is translated from that word uh, bima. We see Paul talking about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 25, where he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but, run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temporal in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. He's talking about those in the ancient games. But you, as a Christian, we do it for an imperishable crown. Now, we're not going to take the time to do this, but the Bible talks about the imperishable crowns that we will receive, and what are those? There's a total of five imperishable crowns that we will receive based upon how we lived our life. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is not to give an, for you to give an account of your sins. Okay? That would undercut everything that Jesus did on Calvary. The judgment seat of Christ is not a time to judge you on your sins. The judgment seat of Christ is a time in which you give an account of how you lived your life as a steward of Jesus Christ. So in other words, after the moment of salvation and how you served the Lord through your time, how you gave of the Lord through your resources and the heart behind doing so, those are all taken into account during the judgment seat of Christ. And how we did so and how we live for the Lord will result in the imperishable crown, those crowns that the Scriptures mention. And so if we're bringing this home here, when it comes to what Jesus is saying here uh, about the Lord lifting us up and the Lord uh, rewarding us openly, he's referring to the future reward that we will receive in Christ. And so when it comes to our serving here, when it comes to our financial giving, we a lot of times as pastors will say, you're investing in eternity. And that's a hard concept for us to be able to understand because we're used to giving to something that we can physically see. We're used to serving and being involved in something that we can physically see. When the rest of Scripture literally says, you are not giving for the temporary, you are giving for the eternal. And so the reward that you is going to be promised to you, you will not receive now. You will receive that in the future. And so be patient and continue to serve. That's what Jesus is saying here. When it comes to giving of your resources, when it comes to serving God through your righteous acts, you serve for the glory of God alone. And eventually, in the future, you will be rewarded based upon your heart behind your sacrificial giving and serving now. So that's the first aspect that he talks about. God is glorified through our works. But then he continues on. We're going to look at number two. God is glorified through our prayer. God is glorified through our prayer. Within these verses, Jesus provides two points when it comes to our prayer life. If we're to begin to pray in God in a God-honoring way, we must adapt the right posture and the right petition. Let's begin with the right posture. Jesus continues in verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, the standing posture in prayer during the ancient practice among the Jewish culture and the early Christian church was common. But there was nothing wrong while standing while praying. I did that just a few moments ago a couple of different times. There's nothing wrong with the physical aspect of standing as we know. The problem, as was the case here, was that the religious leaders were standing to pray and they were doing so to draw attention to themselves during their prayers and their acts of insincerity. We see probably the best example of this portrayed to us through the parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18. Jesus says that two men went up to the temple to pray 
One was a Pharisee, whom we know to be a religious leader, and the other was a tax collector, the despised, the most despised among all of those within the Jewish culture. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not as much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus is not focusing on the physical posture of those that prayed. He's focusing on the posture of the heart. What is your motivation behind the prayer? Our prayer life is an intimate time before God where we call upon God for his guidance and leading. And Jesus says that when we pray with big words, and audacious proclamations to garner the attention of others, we will once again receive our reward, and that reward is the praise of man. Now, I think that we probably in churches today maybe run the opposite of that problem, and that is the lack of um, desire for people to want to pray out loud. And I got it. It's a form of public speaking. I totally got it. I will never pressure anyone to pray out loud. But whether you run into that fear or the, or, or, or the desire to pray so people think that you're something special, they both have their issues. Because when we are praying together as a collective body of Christ, we should not be concerned with how we sound, whether we sound like an educated person or a person that's not so educated. We should not be concerned by that because we're not praying for the benefit of other people and what they think of us. We're praying for the benefit of our relationship with God, whom the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that God literally answers the prayer of those that don't even know the words to say. We talked about this in church before. If you were to look at Romans chapter 8, the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit understands our hearts. And there are times that we pray to God, but we don't even know the words to say. And so the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, literally groans and brings our utterances before God praying on our behalf before God through us when we don't have the words to say, even through those moments, God knows our hearts and knows our desires and answers our prayer. But we have to look at the posture of the heart. Jesus says here in verse 6, He says, but when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in a secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Again, Jesus is not condemning public prayer. We do that as a church. In Acts chapter 4, we see the church nervous and scared because Peter and John had been arrested for proclaiming the truth, and this is the first time that that really ever took place. So they go back to the church after they've been freed, and they tell the church what happens. The church, rather than praying for God's um, protection, the church gathers together, as Acts chapter 4, verse 24 says, they heard the news of the persecution, they raised their voice to God with one accord, and they prayed for boldness that they would continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel and not allow the threat of being thrown in prison for them from doing so. So what does that show us? They pray together as a church body. So there is a time for that. But what Jesus says here is that if your prayer is limited to only times of public prayer, then you are missing out on a significant aspect of your personal prayer life. 
Jesus says there must be times that you go away privately and separately and you pour your heart out to God. For some of you, the best time to do so may be in your commute to work, if you work somewhere else that has a drive. So oftentimes, well, I'll be in the car and I'll be just praying out loud privately in the car to God. Wherever that is, make sure that that is a significant aspect of your life, but check your posture and your prayer that your heart is approaching God in a humble, sincere way. But there's the letter B, the right petition. Jesus adds in verse 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for, many, for their many words. Now, what does that mean? Vain repetitions. Vain repetitions is in relation to, specifically in this time period, those that were the heathens that were part of the Greco-Roman world that served multiple different gods. Their gods were, of course, not the one true God, and so they believed that their gods were not much different than humans. Okay, so if you could think about this from a marital standpoint, usually happens more with guys than it does ladies. I know it happens often, unfortunately, in our um, household. My wife, in her loving way, will subtly remind me in multiple different ways of a thing that needs to be accomplished in her home. Not nagging. My wife doesn't do that. She's very spiritual and understanding that way. But her understanding helps her realize that my man needs to be reminded a few different times. And so what the, what the heathen culture was doing in their vain repetitions is they believed that their gods needed to be reminded about their prayer, and so they consistently prayed to God, their God, over and over again to remind them, hey, God, don't forget about my need. Here it is once again. But on top of that, they also believed that their words literally carried magical powers. And so they believed that if they were to say certain words on a consistent basis, it would magically bring about an answer to their prayers by their gods. That's what vain repetition is. Vain repetition is repeating something over and over again to remind God of what he may have forgotten. Now, I already know some of you are saying, well, this goes against everything what the Bible talks about importunity, right? Now, why does God talk about how we have to consistently pray for something? We don't pray for something to remind God of what we prayed about before because God doesn't need to be reminded. Literally, Jesus says here that God already knows our requests before we ever share them. We don't pray to God for that reason. We pray to God in order to tune our hearts with what God is calling us and desiring us to do through his will. You've been there before, right? You have something that is pressing on your mind, and the more and more you pray about it, the more and more you lift it up before God, you find yourself becoming more in tune with how God is leading you in that scenario. So when it comes to this praying, we're not, this vain repetition, we're not praying before God to remind him. But it's also interesting that he says this before he enters into the Lord's Prayer. Some of you have grown up in other religions, right? Where in those religions, um, they are, uh, every, before every meal, they pray, they recite the Lord's Prayer. How many of you have ever been part of a family or been to a dinner where they recite the Lord's Prayer before their meals, right? Okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not attacking the hearts of the people behind doing so but to incessantly repeat the Lord's Prayer without just, like, just reciting it as a prayer is a form of vain repetition. It is saying something to God without really thinking about it, without really meaning it. You say, well, Pastor Brandon, 
Jesus literally says that when you pray, pray this way. Come next week because we're going to talk about really what that means. We don't have time to do so today. But vain repetitions is bringing it up in an insincere way before God to remind him of the prayer that, uh, that you believe he didn't hear the first time. Now, as we close this morning, may we be encouraged to live for a purpose. Not the fame and glory of ourselves, not for the recognition of others, but for God and God alone. I want to take a moment here and just challenge you to allow what we've talked about this morning to extend into every single area of our life. Some of you may not feel conviction when it comes to your giving because you give privately. Praise, praise God for that. Okay, maybe some of you could just pray about how you can further give your finances and your time for the kingdom of God. Okay, but I'm going to leave that between you and God. But let's say that you've got that aspect figured out. Let's say that you've got kind of the prayer thing, although not perfect, the prayer thing figured out. You, you don't pray for the glory of man. You pray for God. You don't feel comfortable praying in front of other people. But let me kind of bring this scenario and maybe into other areas, and I'm probably going to step on some toes here. Um, and I mean this in the most loving ways I possibly can. My sole purpose as a pastor is not to make you feel good. I don't mean that badly. If I was to stand up here and just say what you wanted to hear every week, I would be failing you as a pastor. But are you bringing God glory in every single area of your life? The Bible says, I'm going to read this verse and I'm going to unpack it just for a moment, then we're going to close. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 33, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So think about your entertainment choices. Are they bringing God glory? Think about your language. Are they bringing God glory? I'm amazed at how many Christians consistently, I understand slip-ups happen, I got that, but consistently curse. Pastor Brandon, you have no idea the type of people that I work around. It's hard for me to control it. I don't really fully buy that because I don't hear people cursing in church on Sunday. Does God have glory in every area of your life? Now, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I have to consistently take a step back on this because I do not have this all figured out. I don't think any human being will ever have all this figured out on this side of eternity. But I do want to challenge you to take what God's Word says here this morning and search every area of your life and see if God is receiving glory in that area. Some of you may be struggling with private sins, sins that only God knows. You don't need to confess that to me or anyone else, but you do need to get it right before God. Set up an accountability partner. But as we close this morning, I do want to close that final thought, that final question. Is, is God getting glory in every area of your life?